This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move into a deep dive on a question or category from one of those episodes. And at the end, we have a quiz. So this week, we have the semifinals and finals of the Million Dollar Masters tournament from 2002. And on Monday, we get the semifinalists, Eric Newhouse, a director of technical assistance from Vermilion, South Dakota. Leslie Shannon, a manager of a research lab from Sydney, Australia. And Bob Harris, an author, comedian, and radio commentator from Los Angeles, California. And our Jeopardy! categories are American Revolutionaries, TV's Pretty Faces, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Lil Bow Wow, Let a Smile Be Your Umbria, and Strain Thy Brain. Yeah, they really went for it. I... I was worried that TV's Pretty Faces was going to be a bit too um, old-fashioned. But they did include men, so that was nice. (laughs) That is true. That is true. I appreciate that. After that, I have an inside category last week. Right. (laughs) Still mad. Uh, This game was... It was impressive. Mm-hmm. I mean, Eric was just... Eric was so dominant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, through through both rounds, he, he just... He took command. Bob made it a game, though, by the end. But mm-hmm. Eric's buzzer skills, I think, must be incredible. Because we know he's up against really solid competition, you know? Um, oh, yeah. We, we talk about that a lot. But, like, that's, yeah. that is the difference, because... Going up against other contestants, presumably of a similar level, you're going to assume that everybody knows most of the answers. So Mm -hmm. whoever can get in is the one who gets it. That's right. We get Daily Double number one in the Let a Smile Be Your Umbria category. It is at the $1,000 level. Uh, Eric finds this one. He is out to a big lead already. It's pick number 15. He has 4,000, Bob is at zero, and Leslie's at negative 600. Uh, he wagers 1,500, and he gets the clue. Running through Umbria are the Tiber and Nera rivers, and the Umbrian range of this mountain system. And he gets it, that is the Apennines. Mm-hmm. Not sure what else to say about that. Um, Not really. Mountains, they yeah. exist. There they are. Um, there was some fun stuff in the strain thy brain category Mm -hmm. I thought oh that's that's way before the daily double Um, that's okay you can still talk about it I liked the $800 clue the US National Historic Landmark found in California that moves at a steady 9.5 miles per hour I didn't get it neither did but once you hear the answer, it just feels so obvious. It's the San Francisco cable cars. Yep. Yeah. But the fact that they're a landmark. Like, I, I don't know what else they would be, 
but to call them a landmark seems almost mm-hmm. dishonest. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Like that a landmark by its nature should not move. Right. That's kind of like one of the foundational elements of a landmark. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like the $1,000 one as well. In the 16th century, it was the unusual annual rent paid by the Knights of Malta to Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. That is the real Maltese falcon. The source of the title of the uh, the novel and, and subsequent film noir, uh, The Maltese Falcon. Indeed. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Eric is up to 11,100. A respectable final Jeopardy uh, score. And Bob is at 2,000 and Leslie is at zero. And they get the double Jeopardy categories. Shakespeare. All the President's Men. I've got a little list. As in Franz list. Bobbing for Bobs. Tough Geography. And Before, During, and After. Which... He then, Alex then goes on to explain what that means. I feel like, I I mean, I know from experience that any contestant now going into a tournament expects a category like this, or in mm-hmm. fact, this exact category to come up. It is almost a joke now that you know it will come up. Or not even a joke, because it's not funny. It's just, mm-hmm. it's knowledge. You, you will get this. Be prepared for it. Um, so that was interesting to see him explain it and the, and the contestants be like, hmm, hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. And, like, didn't he get, like, applause or laughter after he, like, gave the explanation like from the audience? Very yeah, active so, audience. Yeah, I wonder, you know, if one of our one of our uh, listeners who, who knows the archive and that kind of thing, I wonder if this is the first time before, during, and after showed up. Oh, Had it ever been yeah. used before? Yeah, good question. Let us know. I feel like they really went for broke on those before, during, and after clues. Those oh, were, they, they were they very were, good. They were beautiful clues. I loved them. Mm-hmm. They were very well done. I I was able to get to one or two of them by the time they got answered. And they all got answered mm-hmm. correctly, which was yeah. very impressive. Indeed. For instance, the $1,600 clue. A 19th century Sioux leader who damages porcelain as a labor union representative. And that's Sitting Bull in a China Shop Steward. Mm-hmm. That's a lot to parse. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, I like the 2000. The first to score in overtime wins the game between Hemingway's Bull Book and Debussy's Hoofed Deity at Midday. That is sudden death in the afternoon of a fawn. I got stuck on Golden Goal instead of sudden death. So I was like, what oh. Hemingway book starts with Starts with goal. I don't... What? Yeah. 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 Delightful. Delightful before, during, and after category. All right. We get the second Daily Double as the 15th pick. Um, Bob finds this one. And he makes it a true Daily Double with 6,400. Leslie's at 1,200 at that point. Eric is way in the lead at 18,700. It's in Shakespeare at the $800 level. Um, He gets the clue. He has the nerve to woo a widow beside her father-in-law's coffin, but she marries him anyway. And Bob, I think pretty confidently says, who is Richard III? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, that is correct. Yeah, he was very much a showman. Yeah. In this episode. (laughs) Yep. 
Daily Double number three is in the All the President's Men category. It's at the $1,600 level. Uh, Eric finds this one as well. He is in a pretty commanding lead at 19900 Bob is at 11600 and Leslie is at 1200 Eric wagers 2000 He gets the clue, This defense secretary under Ronald Reagan received a full pardon for his role in the Iran-Contra affair. Uh, and Eric guesses George Schultz, but it is Casper Weinberger. Mm-hmm. Just goes to show you, kids... If you want to get away with anything, just become a politician. Mm, there's a life lesson for us all. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to say anything about the list? Oh, you know I do. Uh, other than I, I really enjoyed the list category and few things um, to mention. One, listomania is the coolest thing to come out of the 1840s. (laughs) Two, uh, if there is ever an emperor in North America in the mid-1900s, that's Emperor Maximilian. Three, I got a poetry question because I knew Tennyson wrote Charge of the Light Brigade. Very nice. And four, if there's ever a question about a violinist before like 1950... Uh, then it's going to be Paganini. So the $2,000 clue lists La Clochette Fantasy is a difficult piano piece based on this violinist's difficult B minor concerto. Uh, There really weren't very many famous violinists before the 20th century. Um, At least that have maintained their names to Mm -hmm. the current day. And Paganini is pretty much the only one. So yeah. All right. There we go. Um, so at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Eric is in the lead with 25500 It is not a lot game because Bob is in second place with 14800 Leslie has 2800 That wasn't her day with the buzzer. And we get the final Jeopardy category in the dictionary. The clue is, in his dictionary, Samuel Johnson self-effacingly defined this job title in part as a harmless drudge. Uh, Leslie's wagered everything. Um, uh, all she could come up with it is, what is a dictionary writer? Which, well, it's not how he defined it. It's not the job title he defined. Right. Um, yeah. But Bob and Eric both have it correct. Um, Bob has wagered everything uh, and correctly responds, what is a lexicographer? That takes him up to 29,600. Um, Eric has wagered 4101 and has the correct response. What is a lexicographer? That takes him, that's a cover bet, so it takes him to 29601. And he is the winner and will go on to the finals. Yeah. Man, after watching that first game, I was like, how did he not win at all? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, just really strong. Out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that does bring us to uh, Tuesday's game which featured the contestants India Cooper, an actor and copy editor from New York City, New York, Leslie Freitz, a Spanish teacher from Hayward, California, and Brad Rutter, a network administrator from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And they get the Jeopardy round categories, lesser known names, pop music, U.S. bodies of water, P's and Q's, saints and sinners. And uh, Brad starts off by saying he likes sinners, but he'll do pop music. 
which was a good mm-hmm. choice for him because he ran that category right out the gate. Yep. I also ran that category as in I got none of them right. (laughs) (laughs) I got five for fighting because I had missed that question in Learned League recently. Hmm. I thought it was the fray. I'm like, the only that sounds like the fray, but I know it's Mm -hmm. not. So I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. We did get Quadrophenia. Oh, yeah. That goes back to one of our early episodes in the quiz, right? Yes. Um, oh man, I did talk about Quadrophenia, didn't I? You did, yes. Soon we will have talked about all of human knowledge. That's we're that's have to fair. Hang up our hats. That's right. What I don't even remember what that question like what that whole thing was around. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> well, clearly we need to go back and listen to our back catalog. Yep. Alright. Uh, so we get the first daily double in the Saints category at the six hundred dollar level. India finds this one. Um, it's the 28th pick. She, she wagers 2,000 of her 2,600. Um, Leslie's at 2,400 at this point, and Brad is in a solid lead at 9,600. And she gets the clue. St. Paul shares his June 29th feast day with this man, whom he rebukes in Galatians. She guesses who is Timothy. Not a bad guess. The correct answer here is St. Peter. Um, Timothy was, uh, kind of a, he traveled with St. Paul, was kind of, uh, like a disciple of St. Paul in a way. Um, uh, but Paul and St. Paul and St. Peter, they were on the same team, but they had a little bit of a rivalry. They didn't always see eye to eye. Hence the Catholic and Orthodox churches. Yes. And we have, um, I feel like St. Francis came up the previous day, right? Mm-hmm. There was something about Assisi in the in the Umbria category, and then at the thousand dollar level of saints, we have a follower of Saint Francis. This poor saint is the patroness of television. That is uh, Saint Claire, also of Assisi. Um, mm. So yeah, Saint Francis and Saint Claire, uh, they kind of go together. You wouldn't happen to yeah. know how Saint Claire became the patron of television, would you? Oh, I'm trying to remember it. It's a fun story, but I can't quite bring it to mind. Hold on, let me let me uh, refresh my memory here. Ah, yes. Um, uh, so she was uh, designated as the patron saint of television in 1958, um, and the reason is that when she was too ill to attend mass, um, she had reportedly miraculously been able to see and hear the mass being said on the wall of her room in the 13th century. Yeah, she tuned in. So, yeah. Yep, she uh, she just she just watched it on Saint TV. Mhm. Yeah. Saint.tv. Yes. <laughs> .tv incidentally apparently is where uh, the nation of Tuvalu, Tuvalu. gets gets a bunch of its money. Yeah, <laughs> got a lot of money <laughs> off of that. Anyway, um, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Brad is in the lead with 9,600. Leslie's in second place with 4,200. India has 600, uh, but there's lots of money on the board in Double Jeopardy, um, where the categories are chemistry, anagrammed names, uh, you have to provide two first names which are anagrams of each other. 
Switzerland, million, dollar, and masters. Very cute. Yeah. Indy got some applause in the million category at the $800 level. Thomas Wolfe described this island as a million-footed, tower-masted, and sky-soaring citadel. And uh, mm-hmm. Brad rang in and said, what is Mont Saint-Michel? What is, where, what is Mont Saint-Michel? What was, he, what was he thinking of there? I'm trying to I, figure it I out. I really don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, that might have something to do with Thomas Wolfe. I don't know. But uh, India got in and said, what is Manhattan? Of course. You know, yeah. hometown. Yep. That's right. Uh, so Daily Double number two shows up in the Switzerland category. It is at the $2,000 level. It's pick number 15, and Brad finds it. He is in the lead at 14400 Leslie's at 8200 and India's at 1800 Brad wagers 2000 Gets the clue, a period of the Mesozoic era was named for this mountain range that straddles the Swiss-French border. And for, I believe, Learned League members, we would know, as he did, that it is the Jura mm-hmm. for the Jurassic period. Although Sweet. Brad claims that it was pure luck, which I don't know if he was just pulling <laughs> pulling the, the beginnings of Mesozoic eras and being like, that sounds right. Uh but he got it, so there we go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a wine region. It's one of my associations with the Jura. Daily Double number three comes up in the Masters category at the $1,600 level. It's the 19th pick. Leslie finds it, and at that point, she has 9400 Brad has 17600 India has 1800 Alex points out that if she makes it a true daily double, she can take the lead. Um, she wagers 9000 so almost everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And gets the clue. Van Gogh and Kandinsky were in this modern art show named for the New York City military building where it was held in 1913. And she knows that that is the armory show. So she takes the lead away from Brad. Great moment there. Um, yes. Yeah. And then a good get from uh, from India right after that uh, at the $2,000 level. Miss Gentileski, the painter, Ray Vikram, and movie subject, whose work is seen here, and they show an image, had this first name. And she correctly responds, who is Artemisia? Mm-hmm. Really interesting life story. So, after that, Brad and Leslie kind of duke it out. They go, they they trade the lead a few times in the last, you know, five or six clues. Uh, they save the anagram names for last, and it was just, it was a nail biter mm-hmm. going back and forth. Uh, on the last clue, though, uh, the $2,000 clue, Brad got it wrong, which meant that he dropped below Leslie. So, at the end of Double Jeopardy, Indy is at 3800 Brad is at 19,600 and Leslie's at 20,400. Uh, and they get the category Pulitzer Prize winning books and the clue. One of its title studies is Senator Edmund Ross's 1868 vote against convicting President Andrew Johnson. Uh, and they all got it right. 
and that is Profiles in Courage. Mm-hmm. So India made a zero bet. Probably a smart choice. Yeah. Given how close Brad and Leslie were. Smart mm-hmm. choice. Yep. Brad bet everything. So he doubled up to 39,200. And Leslie made a cover. No, she didn't. She bet zero. And I, you know, there's always what ifs. There's always Great what ifs. But heart. like, there's always what ifs. But, you know, if she'd made a cover bet, where would, you know, Brad Rudder? Brad Rudder right. would not be Brad he Rudder. Would, you know what I mean? He would be Brad Rudder. This was like, this was Brad Rudder becomes Brad Rudder in this tournament, I think. Right. Right. Yeah, he'd, yeah. I mean, he he'd won the tournament of champions, mm-hmm. pre like before that, so he was already one of the elite. Not to yeah, not to diminish course, him yeah. at all. Like he I earned mean, his you, place you, in this tournament. You get on the stage by being one of the elite, right? Um, yeah, but yeah, zero zero bet from Leslie. Yeah, and she says, "Can I change it?" She's yeah, she's charming. I uh, I appreciate her, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, oof. Big strategic error there. I wonder if she just really didn't trust herself on the category. Yeah, maybe. Or didn't understand the wagering strategy, or if she thought that Brad was going to bet small, hoping she would drop below him. Um, but yeah, just make the cover bet. Just make them just, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, the cover bet does run the risk of dropping below India, even if you both... You know, she and Brad mm-hmm. missed it, but like, it's still and tough to lose. And second and third place get way. the same get the same prize. So that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess it could. Win. If everyone's going to drop down very low, then you know, the least low will win. But mm-hmm. but there's there's not much point playing for second in this case. Yep. Certainly not from the lead. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway. Anyway. Moving on. Um, yep. Uh, so, uh, Wednesday's show, we had semifinal game three. Uh, our contestants are Claudia Perry, a sports copy editor from Jersey City, New Jersey. Bob Marini, a film journalist and test prep teacher from Los Angeles, California. And Chuck Forrest, a lawyer and CEO from London, UK. And the categories are those darn Etruscans people. So you want to be a 19th century heroine, Central Park, this category stinks, and abbreviated states. Uh, they will they will allude to the abbreviation, but they want you to give the state's full name. Which became an issue uh, at the $800 level. When abbreviated mm-hmm. before the number 47, this state becomes an assault weapon. Bob rang in with what is Arkansas, which is AR, not the AK that they were looking for. And Claudia mm-hmm. said, uh, what is AK for AK 47, not Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that's not wrong, but we need yeah. the actual state. So Chuck right. got in with Alaska. Yep. Yeah. Um, Claudia is really bright, really dynamic, really fun to watch. But so it felt like, so- like she sometimes got sort of flummoxed by being on the stage and was doing really well in spite of it, just because she knew a lot of stuff. Yeah, I got that impression too. Like whenever she had to like pick a, the next clue, it always seemed like, oh, uh, let's do that. Yeah, yeah. But she just knows her stuff, so it works works yeah. for her. Yeah, it was fun to see her get the Central Park Zoo, as she is the closest thing to a uh, a New Yorker of the of the people on the stage. You know, sort of a sure home field. So we get the first daily double in the this category stinks 
category. Uh, it's at the $800 level. Claudia finds it. She is in the lead at 3,400 over Chuck's 3,000 and Bob's negative 1,200. Uh, he, he had a rough start. And uh, she wagered 2,000 and she got the clue. The strong odor of this semi-aquatic rodent gives it its name. And she says, what is a swamp rat? Ugh. But it is the muskrat. Yeah. Not to be confused with the muskox. Alex Trebek's favorite animal. It's true. I don't really know anything about muskrats. Other than they are not muskoxes. No. Yeah. Nor swamp rats. Nor are Um, they an apple. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Or I should say not necessarily an apple. Not necessarily an apple. Yeah. All right. So at the end of the Jeopardy round... Chuck is in the lead at 3,800. Bob has uh, managed to pull himself out of the hole. He's up to 2,400, and Claudia is at 1,400. And they get the double jeopardy categories, colonial arts, international cuisine, we are the champions, religion, problems, problems, and end the beginning with E-N in quotation marks. Mm -hmm. I can mention now, Claudia did really well on that international cuisine category. Mm-hmm. Um, Chuck got the first one, which uh, is a bird's nest soup question. <laughs> Classic. Because Jeopardy is coming from the past to uh, to give me a hard time about having missed that HQ one. Uh, yep. Yeah, when making this classic Chinese soup, be sure to remove the twigs, feathers, and insects first. Uh, it's bird's nest soup. Um, but then Claudia gets questions about fondue, um, about... Uh, a Mexican seafood dish where the seafood is cooked not by heat but by the acid and lime juice. That's ceviche. She knows that the Greek dish uh, consisting of layers of eggplant and ground lamb or beef topped with white sauce is moussaka. Maybe I've never had good moussaka. I don't think you have. Um, And and she knows that uh, the Italian term that describes pasta with a sauce of eggs, cream, parmesan, and bacon is carbonara. Um, so she didn't quite run the category. Chuck got that first one, um, but she got the she got the other four. Yeah, and she finds the second daily double in the "We Are the Champions" category at the sixteen hundred dollar level. Uh, she has forty six hundred at that point. Bob has fifty six hundred. Chuck has fifty four hundred. She wagers twelve hundred and gets the clue. At Wimbledon two thousand, Venus Williams expressed appreciation for this nineteen fifty seven and fifty eight champion, and she correctly responds, "Who is Althea Gibson?" Just to reiterate here, Claudia is a sports copy editor, mm-hmm. um, and Althea Gibson is a groundbreaking um, black female tennis star. So this is like, you can sort of see that she like, you know, this was really in her wheelhouse. Um, uh, (laughs) It was, was fun to see her get that one. Yeah. She knew it right away. Yeah. Uh, She also found daily double number three. So Claudia found all three of the daily doubles. That's right. Uh, It was in the religion category at the $2,000 level. It was pick number 25, so much later in the round, she was in the lead at 13,400. 
Chuck was at 7,400 and Bob was at 10,400. And she wagered 4,000, going kind of big. And she gets the clue. Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon from gold plates revealed to him by an angel named this. And she took a long time, then guessed what is Atalok. But it is the angel Moroni or Moroni. Mm-hmm. Alex said Moroni. I've I've feel like I've heard it more commonly Moroni, but I, I feel like could, I, could be wrong. I'm I'm not sure, but Moroni sounds um, like a better pronunciation to me. Sort of thinking about how you normally pronounce biblical names. Yeah. Um, Either way. Yeah. Either way, Claudia missed it. Yep. And drop back down. Yeah. Bummer. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, um, Bob is in the lead at 12,400. Chuck is in second place at 10,600. Claudia has 9,400. And we get the category knowledge by the numbers. And the clue is number of males who served as British prime minister in the 1990s plus... Oscars, won by Tom Hanks, plus protons in helium nucleus. Claudia has incorrectly responded, what is eight? And she's wagered everything, which is probably a mistake from this position because it's likely the two guys above her are going to make big enough wagers to drop below her. Uh, So unfortunately, she drops to zero. Um kind of a moot point because uh, Chuck has it correct. Um, He correctly responds, what is six? That is uh, the two male British prime ministers are John Major um, from 1990 to 1997 and Tony Blair um, from 97 to 2007, although they didn't have an end date for him at that point. The two Oscars for Tom Hanks were for Philadelphia and Forrest Gump. And, of course, there are two protons in a helium nucleus. Um, Chuck has wagered everything also. Um, I think wanting to uh, stay ahead of a potential double up from Claudia, which, smart move, because, you know, that's what she would have done if she'd gotten it right. Um, So he goes up to 21,200. Um, Bob also has the correct response. What is six? And he has wagered 8,801. That is a cover bet. So he is our finalist. Well, well played game. Yeah. Great game. Most, uh, mm-hmm. Bummer for Claudia on that, uh, on that daily double, but then she also missed final. So it didn't end up being the deciding factor. Mm-hmm. So that's the end of the semifinals. So on Thursday, we get the finalists, Bob Verini, a film journalist and test prep teacher from Los Angeles, California, Eric Newhouse, a director of technical assistance from Vermilion, South Dakota, and Brad Rutter, a network administrator from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And they get the Jeopardy Round categories, British Royalty, Recent Films, Tough Potpourri, Authors Native Lands, Grand Central with Grand in quotation marks, and Station. I like all the New York centric clues. It's nice. Yeah, it's really nice. It's it's cool. <laughs> it's really really cool. Sorry, Kyle. It's fine. It's like fine. the universe doesn't revolve around us enough already. 
<laughs> with yeah. like themed categories themed to my to my uh, my own home region. Right. Every night, preferably. Please, thank you. We had a question in British royalty that you asked me something similar to last week. Um, born in Corfu in 1921. Mm-hmm. He's a great-grandson of the Danish king, Christian the IX. Uh, that is Prince Philip. We talked about that. We did. We're learning. We're Corfu. learning things. Yes. Ah. Yes. Uh. Eventually, we will get through all of human knowledge. That'll mm-hmm. be really nice. That's the plan. Probably, probably by probably by December. I think we'll be we'll be good. Yeah, I mean, really, how much can there be? Not much more, apparently. <laughs> we get the first daily double in the author's native lands category at the eight hundred dollar level. Brad finds it and makes it a true daily double with fourteen hundred. Um, Eric has four hundred at that point, and Bob has zero because uh, it's the seventh pick. Mm-hmm. And he gets the clue, Godot waiter Samuel Beckett. And he correctly responds, what is Ireland? So that gives him a little bump, but found it a little earlier than you would ideally like to. He didn't have much to wager. But he does manage to, he manages to get a, a pretty decent lead. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, Brad has a good lead with 6,400. Eric is in second place with 2,800. Bob has 2,200. And we get the double jeopardy categories. General science, big names in sports, ballet, architects, Near East ancient history, and grammar school. Mm-hmm. Unusually for jeopardy, you had to actually know some stuff about ballet for the ballet category. <laughs> That's that's true. Um, maybe that's why I felt really good about it. <laughs> um, yeah, the first the first question, the the four hundred dollar question, was um, a, about uh, a sexually confused stable boy who is the focus of this ballet based on Peter Schaefer's play of the same name. That's Equus. You don't really need to know ballet for that one, but then I think you need you need to know ballet for the rest of them. I think right. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. The $800 level, the 1938 premiere of this ballet featured Lou Christensen in the role of, oh, in the role of Pat Garrett. So I guess you could know the name Pat Garrett. Um, yeah. Yes, my mistake there. Um, I misread the clue. You, you uh, could. It might be hard to place Pat Garrett if you're thinking of ballet. But yeah. If you don't know that Billy the Kid is a, also a ballet. Mm-hmm. And then we get uh, one of the names that gets mixed up, I think, a lot at the sixteen hundred dollar level. In nineteen eleven, this great dancer, yeah, this great dancer, leapt into immortality with his magnificent exit leap in Le Spectre de la Rose. And that's Nijinsky. Mm-hmm. Bob got that one. And uh, then we have a, a name I memorized when I was studying for Jeopardy the first time around. Uh, this co- at the two thousand dollar level level. This choreographer played one of the sailors when his ballet Fancy Free premiered in 1944. That's Jerome Robbins. Mm-hmm. Bob got that one as well. Okay, Daily Double number two shows up in the Grammar School category. It is at the $1,200 level. Brad finds this one as well. He's in the lead at 10400 Bob is right behind at 9800 and Eric's at 6400 uh, He wagers just 600 and he gets the clue... 
besides fancy sounding, in lieu of salary is this type of grammatical phrase. And he gets it right. That's a prepositional phrase. Mm-hmm. That whole grammar school category was surprisingly difficult. Yes. Um, yes, it was. <laughs> this was this was not 101 level. This was tournament level grammar. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Uh, for the third Daily Double, we find it in the Near East Ancient History category at the $1,200 level. Um, Bob finds this one as the 28th pick and wagers 1,000 of his 9,400. Brad's at 16,200 at this, at this point. Eric is at 6,800. And Bob gets the clue. Uh, Dagon was the top god of these people whose name has come to mean uncouth and unsophisticated. And he correctly responds, who are the Philistines? Yeah. He bumps him up a little bit. Not all the way into the, not, not close to Brad's lead though. Sure. But this is the first of a two-day total point affair. Mm-hmm. So as much as you would want to, you know, play to win at all times. It's probably better not to flame out. Yeah, yeah. Going big and, and busting on day one just digs you into a hole for day two. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it doesn't take you completely out of contention, but I think being reasonably well positioned is probably the way to go, I think. Yeah. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, uh, Brad is in the lead at 15,800. Eric is at 7,600. And Bob is at 10,400. And they get the category word histories. And the clue, in old philosophy, this 12-letter word referred to a fifth substance superior to earth, air, fire, or water. And uh, this was a triple stumper. Mm-hmm. None of them got it. Eric wagered everything. Look, I think just trying to to get himself, you know, give it, kind of put himself on an even playing field with the others for the next day. Uh, he wagered all of his seventy six hundred. He put what is phlogiston, which I have no idea what that is. Well, uh, I just Googled it, so now I'm an expert. Um, great. Lay it on me. <laughs> uh, it, uh, it was a, an element that was theorized to be contained within combustible material and released during combustion. Um, hmm. So, like, why do certain things catch on fire when you hold a match to them? Or I guess they didn't have matches when you, when you hold a fire to them. Um, mm-hmm. It's because they contain phlogiston. Interesting. Um, Yes. Apparently, Bob also knew that that was a thing because he also said, what is Philogiston? But again, that is incorrect. And uh, Brad put, what is adamantium? You know, like Wolverine. <laughs> <laughs> um, as real as Philogiston turned out to be, uh, but funnier. Yes. Yes, indeed. Wait, uh, adamantium doesn't exist, right? Well, no, it's, no, it's from... It's from the comics. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I know it is, but... But uh, also, does it, though? <laughs> um, the correct response is quintessence. Mm-hmm. Quint, 
meaning five. Yes. That gives us some low scores um, yeah. heading into our last day. Um, yeah. Brad's at, Brad's at 11,800. Eric is at zero. Bob's at 6,800. And on Friday, this actually aired on a Tuesday. That's weird. Um, <laughs> uh, we get the second game of the two-day total point affair uh, finals of the Million Dollar Masters. Uh, same contestants. That's the whole point of a two-day total point affair. And uh, we get the Jeopardy categories. Mother's Day, Top of the Charts, Golfs, What Possessed Them, Business and Industry, and You Too, You in quotation marks, Two use in each correct response. Mm-hmm. Those are fun words. Yeah. Um, we had... Um, at the $400 level, a Hamburg housewife. Bob got that one. A housefrau. Mm-hmm. At the $800 level, in 1975, Kabuki actor Mitsugoro Bando died from eating this delicacy. Brad knew that was fugu. And at the $1,000 level, another fun one. Hyphenated watery term for a small passenger airplane that makes short trips. That's a puddle jumper. Yep. I would I would never have thought of that, but Brad did. Oh, That's really? Why he's... That's why he's Brad Rudder, and I'm somebody who once got second place on Jeopardy. <laughs> because of Puddle Jumper. <laughs> yes, that is the reason. I actually did fairly well in the top of the charts category, oh, nice. despite my utter lack of knowledge of pop music. So that felt good. I got Bootylicious mixed up with Fergalicious and said Black Eyed Peas <laughs> instead of Destiny's Child. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> Except not. <laughs> um, so we get the first daily double in the golfs category at the six hundred dollar level. Eric finds it. Uh, he has taken the lead. He's at twenty two hundred over Brad's fourteen hundred and Bob's twelve hundred, and he goes all in. Smart move. He gets the clue. This golf, also called the Gulf of Bakpo, had a nineteen sixty four congressional resolution named for it, and he knew that's the Gulf of Tonkin. Mm-hmm. doesn't surprise me he seems pretty strong in his american history yeah uh, as well as like many other things but yeah so at the end of the jeopardy round brad is at 5600 eric's in the lead at 7200 and bob is at 2800 and we get the double jeopardy categories world literature circus and carnival cinema u.s cities they've been benched History hodgepodge and four syllable words. Which, again, the word category was pretty fun. At least to me. I enjoyed it a lot. Yes, agreed. Um, Bob started us right off at the bottom row with the $2,000 level of circus and carnival cinema, um, including this 1932 MGM film was later re released as Nature's Mistakes. Because um, that's much better than the original title. Yeah. Um, the original title is Freaks. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ever hear people chanting, one of us, one of us, that's um, that's a Freaks reference. <laughs> and it's always funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's always funny. Um, yeah. Uh, have you seen that one? 
Uh, I, my mom made me watch it. I've mentioned before, my mom was like Mm -hmm. a, was a film student for a while in college. Um, Mm -hmm. so she made me watch it when I was like 12 or something. Ooh. It's been a long time. (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, I watched at the urging of a film, film buff, um, Mm -hmm. from work. So, yeah, it's a startling piece of film. It is. Yeah. We get Daily Double number two at the $1,600 level of They've Been Benched. Um, Bob finds this one and wagers 5200 of his 15200 He's in the lead at that point. Eric has 12000 Brad has 8800 um, He gets the clue. He resigned from the Supreme Court in 1916 to run for president and was reappointed in 1930 as Chief Justice. And Bob confidently says, Who is William Howard Taft? The audience starts to applaud. I think Bob starts to call the next clue, and Eric mm-hmm. gives like a little, like, you know, a little punch, a little, the, the JR5 characterizes it as an attaboy punch in the arm. <laughs> um, uh, and then Alex rules Bob incorrect. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Ugh, rough break. Um, the correct response here is Charles Evans Hughes. Yes. 1916 was up against Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. The years were wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ugh, tough break. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a huge bait. <laughs> on William mm-hmm. Howard Taft. It's just like, it's right there. You just, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he takes a pretty big hit there. But he keeps fighting. He does a, you know, he, he stays in the game. Eric and Bob both had negs on the clue immediately. After that, they moved up the category mm-hmm. um, and got appointed by President Eisenhower. He served nearly 34 years, retiring in 1990. Bob guessed Earl Warren. Eric guessed Lewis Powell. The correct response is William Brennan. Um, so lost another twelve hundred apiece there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Daily Double Three came at pick number twenty-four. It was in the four-syllable words category at the twelve hundred dollar level. Bob found this one as well. Uh, he had gotten himself to ten thousand four hundred. Uh, behind Brad's 12,400 and Eric's 12,000. So he was still pretty close, and he bet it all. Mm-hmm. He, he saw that this was the time. And he got the clue. This adjective referring to a reversal of common sense comes from the Latin for before, behind. And he says... What is, I'm sorry, I don't know. And uh, Alex says, what is preposterous? Yeah. So Bob drops to zero. Mm-hmm. That broke my heart again. Yeah, big, tough break. Yeah. Um, and I have not quite figured out like how the math all would have shaken out if he'd made a smaller wager. Um, Brad may have been able to... You know, it, it may be that it wouldn't make a difference in Brad winning the tournament. Um, mm-hmm. But I've heard I've heard people say, you know, that Brad, I mean, Brad is obviously, you know, one of the greats, um, but also had, has gotten some lucky breaks over the years. Um, 
yeah. with uh, with strategic errors from other players. Um, I feel like we got to see some of that. True, happening. but also um, on the other, on the flip side of that, plenty of people who could have been, you know, who could be among what we call the elite now, also like they just have had unlucky breaks in terms of judges' rulings or, mm-hmm. you know, who gets a daily double or whatever it is. You know, yeah, yeah. There's a lot that's uh, that's up to chance. Yeah, no matter how well prepared you are. Um. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Brad is in the lead with thirteen thousand six hundred. Eric has twelve thousand eight hundred. Bob has rung back in and gotten one clue, so he has four hundred. He yes. gets to participate. Yay! Yeah, Yay, Bob. Bob. And they get the category vice presidents. And the clue is: he was the only vice president to be elected to and serve. Two full terms as president. So um, we go first to Bob, um, and Alex sort of lauds him for his gutsy daily double move. Um, I mean, I feel like Brad wins the tournament, but Bob is the like gave us the drama of the sure. night. Yeah. Um, uh, He's the hero. Yeah, and uh, Bob has come up with who was Thomas Jefferson. And he's shaking his head. And uh, Alex says, yeah, that's correct. And Bob says, oh, is it? Alex says it is. Um, so he has wagered everything. He doubles up to 800. Add that to yesterday's score. And he has a total score of 7,600. Uh, we go to Eric next. Uh, he has also written who is Jefferson. So he's correct. He's wagered everything. Uh, that's... Uh, 12,800, that brings him up to 25,600. He got uh, nothing the day before, so that is his score. And then we go to Brad. We find who is Jefferson, so he is correct. He has wagered only $201. The audience is shocked. Shocked, I say. Shocked at this low wager. How Why would you make a low wager if you want to win Jeopardy? Why would you, Kyle? Why ever a would you? A low wager is only if you are throwing the game. Only if you're throwing the game. Definitely if you're not being strategic. Right. So we take Brad's appallingly low wager. We add it. Insultingly to- <laughs> low, if you will. <laughs> we add it to that total from the day before. We get $25,601. Coincidentally, a dollar more. Then Eric's score. This is this was the correct strategic move on Brad's yeah, part. Yeah. 100%. Good job, Brad. Um, and Brad wins a million dollars. And um, I guess he's <laughs> always been Brad Rudder, but he becomes Jeopardy Brad Rudder. And uh, the rest is history. Indeed. Yes. So, yeah, this, this was a fun tournament. It was a fun um, tournament. And it was hard, man. <laughs> it was, material was really hard. Could I also just note that the um, the ding, 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 ding sound while they're populating the Jeopardy boards was ridiculously long? Why did it go on that long? That's how it used to be. It's so long. It's too long. No, it's, it's perfect in every way. What are you okay, talking all about? Right. Okay. All right. <laughs> Don't you do this to me, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that was the Million Dollar Masters Tournament. And you know, it's really nice. I mean, 
Obviously, the circumstances for why this is the case are, is totally awful, but it is nice for us doing this podcast that these kind of seminal moments of Jeopardy history are coming back for us to talk about. It's mm-hmm. pretty cool. You know, in other years, we would not get this opportunity. That's right. This so, has been great. Silver lining, I guess. Oh. <laughs> but this, again, is the time of the show where we... Uh, beseech you to direct some money in a certain direction and don't know if you've noticed things haven't necessarily gotten better yet so so uh you could direct your attention toward communityjusticeexchange.org or blacklivesmatter.com both of those places have resources and people who are better able to talk about uh what they do and the importance of what they do than I am. Uh, But we encourage you to go check those places out. Or if you know of a different place, a different thing that you can support in your community, please do so. We encourage you. We ask you to kindly do that. Uh, You know, at the very least, go and buy a book of stamps or something. Mm -hmm. Keep the post office around. Because good (laughs) lord, I can't believe I have to say that. Yeah. Anyway, do good, please. That yeah. is our that is our humble humble request. Yeah, I've unfortunately already purchased all of the Sesame Street stamps, so they are not available to our listeners. I uh... <laughs> every single one, <laughs> all of them. They're mine. Well, you know what? Never mind, everyone. Emily's got it. She's got the post office taken care of. Um, I went I went to buy some books of stamps to support the post office, and they've got really fun ones. So, yeah. Yeah, so it's but, not even like you have to, like, you know, grit your teeth and be like, I guess I'll do this. Yep. It's, it's good for you. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? Do I have deep dive guesses? Yes. Yes, I do. Okay. Uh, here is my first guess. Are you talking about quintessence? I'm not talking about quintessence. And I was sure. I was like, oh, this is slam dunk right here. Easy. Mm-hmm. In the bag. Are we talking about the San Francisco cable cars? I considered it, but no. Ah, dang it. I'm so bad at this. Are we talking about St. Peter and St. Paul? Mm, that would be fun. I thought it was a little too wheelhousey for me, so no. Okay. All right. So we're going back to Thursday's game, um, the finals um, game one in the uh, tough potpourri category at the $800 level. If you've read The Flame Trees of Thika, or if you saw the miniseries, you know that Thika is in this country. And this was a triple stumper. Nobody knew that was in Kenya. I got it right off the bat because I have not read The Flame Trees of Thika and I have not seen the miniseries and my grandma's real mad about it. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, she kept trying to nudge me to read The Flame Trees of Thika during my childhood um, and that is because it's set in Kenya and um, there were a number of family connections with Kenya in my family. Um, including that I went there with my grandmother when I was seven. That's when she started getting on me to, to read this book. Um, Grandma, if you're listening, I'm going to read it next year. I'm putting it on my 2021 <laughs> reading list. Um, uh, my family history with Kenya. Um, my great-grandfather went 
to Kenya in 1930 on mm. safari, the actual kind of safari, like with the guns, not mm. the photo kind of safari. I know, I know. Uh, it was a different time. Um, so that that's one of my connections with Kenya. Um, uh, my paternal grandfather um, and my grandmother, the one who wants me to read The Flame Trees of Thika, um, went with their teenage children to Kenya. Um, my grandfather's an educator um, and had an opportunity to do like kind of an exchange kind of program thing, like a cultural exchange thing, um, and was there with a for a semester with his three teenagers. Wow. Um, yeah, doing all kinds of um, like nature stuff. And then my aunt was one of the teenagers on that trip. She ended up um, feeling really connected to that place um, and those people and um, ended up working in Kenya for many years um, doing NGO work. Um, and then I visited her while she was living and working in Kenya in the early 1990s. And then I traveled there as an adult about eight years ago mm-hmm. as well. Um, yeah. Cool. So, yeah, uh, I didn't mean, I don't, it, this is not a deep dive on like Emily's personal history with Kenya, but like there's a bunch of connections such that the flame trees of Thika was like an instant uh, get for me. So um, obviously I can't do a deep dive on the entire nation of Kenya. That's much too broad. So thinking a little bit about the flame trees of Thika, which I think is too narrow, um, and which I haven't read. Yeah, I thought we'd, um, it's a memoir of um, a, a British girl's childhood in Kenya colony um, in the 1910s, 1920s. And so I thought I'd sort of take that as a guide um, and take us through um, some of the history of colonial Kenya. Okay which is maybe even not quite narrow enough. I did, I did get a little bit into the weeds here and there are some things that I didn't get to explore as much as I wanted to. Um, but I think I've got a lot of material. So taking a super wide view, Kenya is one of the earliest regions where modern humans are believed to have, are believed to have, believed to have lived. Lewis and Mary Leakey did a lot of their work there. Um, the fossil record points to, um, primates in Kenya as long as 20 million years ago, right? Like Africa was the cradle of human civilization, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but anyway, humans in, in Kenya for, you know, for since there have been humans. Um, sure. And I don't want to get into the weeds with the stuff that happens before our focal time period. Um, but there's all kinds of migrations happening um, with different language groups. Um, But by the first millennium BCE, there are farming groups of people who speak Bantu languages inhabiting the region, making all kinds of advances in agriculture and ironworking. And by the first century um, CE, there are some city-states established, um, including Mombasa, uh, which is uh, to this day a city in modern Kenya. trading with the Roman Empire and with Arab regions. The Swahili language develops from that point forward. Um, the Bantu language is the, is the basis of Swahili. Um, but Swahili is uh, very reliant on Arabic loanwords because of those, like those trading relationships um, and functions as a lingua franca for the region. And we start to get into colonial history, although we're going to really focus on 
British colonial history, which is later. So in the 15th century, we start to, we start to, um, get into, um, uh, European involvement in Kenya. Um, Portugal attempts to establish naval bases there and, uh, Mombasa was under Portuguese rule from 1593 to 1698. Um, and then again, 30 years later, 1728-29, um, there are ongoing conflicts among Portuguese Omani Arabs, um, so from Oman um, and uh, English and Dutch traders as well, to a lesser extent. Uh, in 1730, the Omani Arabs defeat uh, the Portuguese forces and take control of Mombasa, it's a major center of trade of um, resources, including slaves, um, East Africa, so mostly Arab slave trade. In the 19th century, um, Omani rule starts to come under some pressure from the British, which is expanding its colonial reach for the British Empire. European missionaries start to arrive in the 1840s. Um, I think a German missionary is the first to... Uh, to arrive in Kenya, but missionaries from um, from various European countries. All of these initial co- colonial conflicts are coastal, um, but by 1850, colonial forces are beginning incursions into the interior um, of what is now modern-day Kenya. Um, there's competition especially between Britain and Germany, and this area is especially important because of its proximity to Zanzibar, which is a major trade hub. In 1884-1885, uh, we have the Berlin Conference, also known as the Congo Conference, um, where the European powers meet in Berlin, European and also uh, the United States, and uh, basically divide up Africa, although the United States, because this is how we roll, uh, reserves the right to accept or not accept the outcome of the conference. <laughs> um, yeah! <laughs> we're not just like that. <laughs> just gotta be me. Much of what becomes modern-day Kenya is, is apportioned to uh, the British Empire. A businessman by the name of William McKinnon, he's Scottish, he forms the British East Africa Association in 1886, which leads to the Imperial British East Africa Company being chartered in 1888 to administer that region. In 1895, the Imperial British East Africa Company is failing, and so Britain proclaims that Kenya is a protectorate. It declares that the East Africa Protectorate, um, the borders of the East Africa Protectorate, are roughly comparable to modern-day Kenya. In 1902, they expand the borders all the way to the border of Uganda, and I believe the borders become just about identical to modern-day Kenya. Through all of these negotiations, there are people living in this land not necessarily feeling great about everything that's happening. Um, there are, <laughs> there are, there's various forms of resistance to colonialism, not all of which is well documented, and uh, much of which is available to us only through the eyes of the colonizing forces, in terms of like what's been preserved in history. Uh, so we have records of a few such movements. Um, some more organized than others, but the the Nandi resistance is one that um, particularly stood out from 1890 to 1906. The Kalenjin people of the Nandi region um, resisted encroachment by um, white British settlers in Kenya using guerrilla tactics. Um, ultimately, on uh, on the 19th of October, 1905. Their leader, uh, Koitalal Arab Samoy, was asked to meet the 
the, the leader of the British troops that was trying to suppress this resistance, um, Colonel Richard Meinertshagen, um, for a truce. They arrived and, uh, upon shaking hands, um, the British colonel killed the, uh, African resistance fighters, uh, all of them, um, in cold blood. Cool. So, yeah, it's great. Um, everything's terrible. There's a bunch of passing administrative responsibility for the East Africa Protectorate among different offices. Uh, It keeps passing between the foreign office and the colonial office. I don't really understand the nuances there of what those, you know, what, what the, what those two offices are and why, why they keep passing responsibility for Kenya back and forth, but it kept coming up in, uh, in what I was reading. So there it is. If somebody knows about that, be my guest. Uh, in 1895 to 1901, um, construction of the railway is a big piece of what's happening with uh, colonization. Um, the goal is to link Uganda to the coast. And uh, in 1895 to 1901, um, in Kenya, they build they build a link from Mombasa to Kisumu on Lake Victoria, um, bringing in about 32,000 workers from India to do the labor. I believe that's the first major arrival of of Indians mm. into Kenya, but uh, there's a major Indian community and a lot of Indian cultural heritage in Kenya to this day. Mm. In 1897, a Lord Delamere arrives in the Kenyan highlands and is impressed by the agricultural potential and starts um, sort of orchestrating, moving lots of British people there. Land is granted in the Kenyan Highlands to promote white settlement in 1902. So, ugh, again. Cool. Um, yep. Uh, uh, in 1904, um, the British signed uh, a treaty with the Maasai people. Mm-hmm. The Maasai tribe agreed to cede possession of Lakipia and Samburu parts of the Rift Valley, um, and it returned for exclusive rights to two territories. Uh, one is a southern reserve in and the other in Northern Reserve in Laikipia. In 1905, the British moved the capital from Mombasa, which is coastal, to Nairobi, which is a little more inland, um, still the capital of Kenya. Um, and the local colonial government, uh, white British colonial government, is established in Kenya, is established in 1906. So it's being ruled by British people, but as a colony with... with um, leadership there in Kenya, not remotely. And this is the period where the Flame Trees of Thika is set. Um, Alex mispronounced Thika, incidentally, mm. I believe. Both according to my memory of how people typically pronounce it, um, and also from what I could find on the internet, that's Thika with a, an unvoiced TH. I think he changed it to just a T. Mm. Um, so the Flame Trees of Thika is a memoir written by Elspeth Huxley, her family arrived in Kenya as part of that uh, wave of immigration invited by Lord Delamere, uh, arriving in 1912. Um, if the name Huxley rings a bell, it should. Um, that's an influential family. Um, the name that came most easily to me was Aldous Huxley, the author of right. Great New World, part of that extended family. And there's oh. lots of lots of um, influential people in various fields in that family. Cool. Yeah. So in 1912, they arrive to be coffee farmers. Um, the mother and father come first and then Elspeth comes a little bit later. Um, she's six years old and comes to Africa accompanied by her governess and her maid. 
Uh, the family lives in Kenya for a couple of years until 1914, then World War I starts. Um, uh, they return to Britain for the duration of the war um, and then come back to Africa after that. Elspeth lives there until 1925 and then returns to Britain for college. And uh, she turned out to be a very accomplished writer. Um, she wrote, I think, about 40 fiction and nonfiction books, but she's remembered best for these two memoirs, uh, Flame Trees of Thika, um, and then The Model Blizzard is the second one. And the two of them chronicle her childhood in Africa. Um, uh, there's a lot of, like, lyrical imagery, I'm told, uh, <laughs> of, uh, you know, the, her, uh, the animals and the scenery and the people. Uh, she describes it kind of an odd childhood, kind of getting passed around, um, being on the margins and privy to, like, very grown-up dynamics among the British colonial set- settlers, um, stuff with labor disputes, stuff with affairs that she's, you know, not really grown up enough for, but, you know, mm. just kind of kind of hanging around. Uh, so this book was published in 1959 um, and adapted into a BBC miniseries in 1981. So that's, uh, it's not especially, it's, it feels, it feels like kind of a deep cut. Like I, I get why it's on a oh, final, yeah. yeah, final game of a tournament. But yeah, that's the Flame Trees of Vika. Cool. Yeah. So in uh, in 1911, we have the second Maasai Agreement, which leads to their forceful removal from the Laikipia Plateau that they had been promised in the first Maasai Agreement to another region, Ngong. Um, so great. Again. It's shocking to me that colonial powers would not stick to the agreements they made. I know, right? Never heard um, of that happening. Yeah. World War One happens. Mm-hmm. Around this time, there's combat uh, between the British um, and the German East African forces. Um, Germany has control of Zanzibar, if I remember correctly. And uh, you might recognize the name Lieutenant Colonel uh, Paul von Leto Vorbeck. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. I'm not good with German. Mm-hmm. Uh, the African Lion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for military buffs, I'm told. I, I seem to remember that being a big deal but yeah i didn't want to get too into the weeds with like world war one military history in, in kenya sure. uh in 1920 the east africa protectorate um becomes a british crown colony um so it is designated as kenya colony hmm. yeah there's lots of local political activity uh, some flares up in the 1920s um the young kikuyu association uh, kikuyu is one of the major Kind of tribal groups in Kenya, the Maasai is another one, and there and there are others, but uh, Maasai and Kikuyu are the two biggest ones. And the uh, Pini Owacho, which translates to Voice of the People movement, um, both of those are active in the 1920s among Native Kenyans objecting to British colonization. And this is the period post World War One. This is the period where Out of Africa is set. The other white people in Kenya book. <laughs> uh, Written by Danish author Karen Blixen um, and published under the pen name Isak Dinesen. She wrote the memoir in English. Um, she later rewrote it in her native Danish, or translated as the case may be. And it is also a memoir. It's about her life on a coffee farm. Didn't Elspeth Huxley also live on a coffee farm? Yes. Yes, she did. Lots yeah. of coffee in Kenya. Yeah. So I haven't read this one either. But... Uh, <laughs> Karen Blixen came to Kenya to marry her fiancé, who um, had moved there to be a coffee farmer. 
it's like an impressionistic, non-linear kind of memoir um, in five sections, lots of kind of vignettes of her experiences with the people, um, both colonial, British, and, uh, and Native Kenyans. Um, and then the last section is more narrative, recounting the untimely deaths of some friends, the financial collapse of the farm, and ultimately the decision to leave Africa. Hmm. And of course, adapted into 1985 Meryl Street Oscar win. So um, the Central Highlands, this region with all the coffee farmers, were, were uh, already home to over a million of the Kikuyu people, most of whom had no land claims in European ways of thinking and lived as itinerant farmers. And the settlers, to protect their interests, um, banned the growing of coffee by native Kenyans. They introduced a hut tax um, and the, <laughs> yes, and the landless uh, Kenyans were granted less and less land in exchange for their labor. A massive exodus to the cities ensued as their ability to subsist on the land dwindled. By the 1950s, there were 80,000 white settlers living in Kenya. Uh, in World War II, Kenya was a source of manpower and agricultural resources for Britain. Um, and the site of some combat between the Allied forces and Italy. In 1946, a movement started growing, especially among the Kukuyu, and in general movement for political representation and freedom in Kenya. The Kenya African Study Union was the first kind of uh, iteration uh, of this uh, organization that, that for this movement, um, uh, which then sort of morphed into the Kenya African Union, Initially led by um, a fairly moderate leader, Harry Tuku, um, but he left the movement as more middle, militant views became predominant, and the Kenya Land and Freedom Army formed. The Kenya Land and Freedom Army um, is also known as the Mau Mau, if the Mau Mau uprising rings a bell. I think, mm. I think you may have brought that up in a previous deep dive, maybe when you were talking about the Boer Wars. Yeah, it sounds familiar. Yeah. So it's not clear what Mau Mau means. Um, it could be an anagram of get out, uh, which in Swahili is Uma Uma. Uh, it could be from Ma Umau, um, which means our grandfathers. Um, nobody's really sure. Over time, a backronym for Mau Mau was adopted, um, a Swahili phrase, which means let the foreigner go back abroad, let the African regain independence. Wow. Yeah. But the organization was called the Kenya Land and Freedom Army, um, and there's some thought that the British like to refer to this organization as Mau Mau because Mau Mau sounds more primitive yeah. and uh, like delegitimizes the movement. Um, Kenya Land and Freedom Army sounds more like what a British person would expect an organization to be called. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, this uh, this group had many members who had um, who had military training. They'd fought for the British in the World Wars, uh, so they have the knowledge, um, but not necessarily um, the uh, equipment or infrastructure for their rebellion. Um, they initiate guerrilla attacks. Um, many are targeting colonial leaders and loyalists, um, but others target families and civilians. It's kind of ugly. And the British sort of readily condemn the Mau Mau uprising as savage and violent and depraved. Um, in 1952, the British declare a state of emergency 
over the Mau Mau uprising and counterinsurgency measures begin under General George Erskine. Um, in 1954, they capture and interrogate the Mau Mau leader, Waruhiu Itote, whose nom de guerre was General China, and gain a lot of information about um, uh, people, the tactics, uh, all, all of that stuff. Also in 1954, a little bit after this, um, Operation Anvil happens, sealing off and locking down the entire city of Nairobi and gathering up every native Kenyan in Nairobi. Um, there are mass detentions. People in these detention camps are screened based on um, what their tribal group is, the Kikuyu and other ethnic groups associated with the Mau Mau uprising are continue in detention. Others are released. Uh, the remaining Kikuyu are screened by British interrogators, um, and they release only like loyalist Kikuyu. Overall, 50,000 Kikuyu people from Nairobi end up either in detention camps or being sent to um, what the British called reserves, um, like tribal reservations, far away from where they live, where their families are, where, you know, anywhere they know. Um, mm-hmm. They're sent, sent to reserves. Um, mostly the men are kept in detention facilities, women and children sent to reserves. Some of the actions of the Kenya Land and Freedom Army are pretty shocking to, you know, the, when you when you read about them. But the British response is much more so. The British, uh, in um, trying to quell this uprising, kill over 12,000 Mau Mau militants and um, implement policies involving the incarceration of over 150,000 men, women, and children in concentration camps and work camps. Um uh, British authorities used torture techniques, rape, castration, starvation, all kinds of terrible stuff. Lots of atrocities. Massacres were committed by uh, by British forces as well as um, by Mau Mau uprising. And uh, the death toll associated with all of this is contested. But we know for sure that over 1,000 insurgents were executed by the British. And then the estimate of total deaths sort of caused by this conflict range from 20,000 to over 100,000. Um, yeah. Uh, the capture of a Mau Mau leader named uh, Deran Kemati on uh, 21st of October 1956 um, sort of heralds the eventual defeat of the Mau Mau uprising and essentially ends the military offensive. So it winds down after that. Um, but in the wake of this uprising, um, substantial governmental changes occur in land policy, especially. Uh, the Swinnerton Plan is put in place, which was used to both reward loyalists and punish Mau Mau, um, but it changed the way that land was allocated for agricultural use in ways that allowed native Kenyan farmers to grow cash crops and to have access to marketing facilities, all of which had been previously monopolized by the white settler minority. And we start moving toward Kenyan independence at this point. Um, in 1957, six seats on the Legislative Council are designated for Native Kenyans. Uh, it had previously been entirely British colonial folks on that body. And then in 1960, representatives from the Kenyan independence movement meet with British government officials in London um, to start negotiating for independence. And at that point, 33 of the 66 seats on the Legislative Council are designated for Black Africans. 
um, and the rest are allocated to other ethnic groups um, on kind of a quota system. We see at this time the formation of the Kenya African National Union, um, led by Jomo Kenyatta. It's probably a name you recognize. Yep. Um, and then, and then a breakaway party, the Kenya African Democratic Union as well. Um, and in 1962, a coalition government between those two parties, um, was formed. The constitution established a bicameral legislature, um, a house of representatives, a senate. The country's divided into seven semi-autonomous regions, each with its own regional assembly. And open elections are held on May, in May 1963. Um, Jomo Kenyatta becomes Kenya's first president. And Britain cedes its, uh, its authority and Kenya becomes independent on December 12, 1963. Which brings an end to uh, Kenya's colonial history. Mm-hmm. I guess, but not its history. There was plenty more after that. Um, right. But I figured that's enough for today's deep dive. Yeah, I think I think that was adequate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and there's, I mean, any there there's so much here. Any any piece of this, I think, probably could have been a deep dive of its own. Um, so it's a rich and complicated and often appalling history. No, but that was good. That was nice. Yeah. Thanks. Well, nice isn't the right word. That was informative. <laughs> full, of, full of atrocities, but you know, now nice. we know. Nice, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, so, you ready for a quiz? Oh, yeah. All right. This is a quiz about Kenya. Okay. It's a little on the nose, but it'll be okay. okay. All right. Question one It sounds similar to the name of a groundbreaking Star Trek character. It also sounds similar to a sandstone rock formation in Australia. But actually, it is the Swahili word for freedom. It's also the motto of the Kenya African National Union, and it's the name of an African socialist movement, among many other things. Uh, it would fit well into one of this week's Jeopardy categories, but it has one too many U's. What Swahili word am I talking about? Okay, one too many U's. I didn't really have a lot more to... Uh... The other clues did not really lead me anywhere, so... Oh no, I'm sorry. Going for, no, that's okay. Going for a Swahili word with three U's. I'm going to say Ubuntu. Oh, that's such a good guess. Oh, it's a really good guess, but it's Uhuru. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did yeah. Not. Oh, uh, like Uhura. Ground... Okay, gotcha. Yes. Uh, yeah, and the, the sandstone rock formation in Australia is Uhuru. Uhuru, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I think that was my hard one. We'll see. All right, question number two. Kenyan Eliud Kipchoge was in the news last October for an athletic feat. What did he achieve in Vienna? Kenyan... Uh... I don't know, so I will guess... Set a world record. That is correct. In... In Vienna. She's... Let's say in the marathon. I think we'll, we'll take that. Uh, he ran a mar- marathon in under two hours. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool. Yeah, this was the sub two hour marathon. Although, um, in the in the running like uh, in the like marathoning community, it's like it's not clear whether it should count as a world record because he didn't do it in race conditions. Okay, um, like they um, he was running it alone, um, not in a crowd. Okay. With, um, like, with 
people running like people running in shifts in front of him to like break the wind for him uh, um okay you know so like it was i believe it was sponsored by someone and uh i should really have researched this more before starting to blather about it on the podcast it was sponsored okay. and it was sponsored and the the idea was to get proof of concept that a sub two hour marathon was possible okay it's very inspiring it was it was inspiring cool um yeah all right uh so well, that's 10 points Yay! All right. Question three. I would say this question was too much of a reach, but we actually heard the answer incorporated into a clue on Jeopardy last week. So maybe it's not too lofty. Princess Elizabeth got word of her father's death while in Kenya in 1952, just after leaving this renowned arboreal hotel. You, uh... <laughs> Way too deep. Famous Arboreal Hotel. Um... I, I, I feel like I'm... When you say it, I'm gonna be like, Oh, yeah, but I cannot remember it. So, I don't know. The Hanging Gardens. Mm, I like that guess. It's treetops. Treetops. Yeah. That's what I was doing with all of those lofty... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it makes sense. Um, like, I, yeah. yeah. No, it's, yeah, it, it was too hard. I'm sorry. It... It's fine. <laughs> you can be a very obscure opera quiz next week or whenever we do this next. All right. Um, all right. You're at 10 points. Question four. The flag of Kenya is a tricolor of black, red, and green with two white edges imposed. And in the center, an image of what traditional items or item? I'll, I'll take I'll take the main item. Oh, I don't remember the... I mean, it, it, it's spears and shield. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I'll remember the. Yeah. I don't remember the. It's a moss eye shield, but yeah, I, spears, spears and shield. Like I've, all I was going for was shield. So yes, definitely ten points. Okay, we got Sweet. it. Okay, question five. Kenya was and is beloved as a destination for seeing remarkable wildlife, especially coveted on safari. Are sightings of the big five for two points each? What five animals? are in the big five. Oh, I just did this. Okay. Big five. Elephant. Lion. Uh, leopard. Rhino. And water buffalo. Let me actually check. Water buffalo is close enough. Um, is, does it... Well, um, wildebeest, is that... It's, wildebeest is totally different. Oh, yeah, okay, water buffalo. Yes, water buffalo okay. is good, I think. Wait, hold on. It's cape buffalo. Oh, okay. Uh, wow. Yeah, water buffalo is the Asian oh. sort of sim- similar. If it's not the same. It. If it's not the same, then, then yeah, it's, it's not it's not the same. All right. Okay. So we're going to call that eight points. Very nice, though. Um, and but, like I people don't people don't think of the, the cape buffalo, you know, right me or wrong. Um, yeah. So that's kind of the surprising one. That's the, yeah. Uh, the big five originally got that status because they were the hardest to hunt and kill on foot. So, bleh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I'm just going to keep making that disgusted sound as long as we're talking about colonialism and um, <laughs> yeah. uh, destroying natural habitats and right. killing wildlife. Um, yes. A lot of Kenya is really well preserved. Yeah. But, bleh. Yeah, but now they're They've become a thing, so people look for them on safari. Um, 
And uh, now there are also a bunch of other sets of five. There's the little five. There's the ugly five. Um, <laughs> oh. uh, yeah. <laughs> um, ugly five, warthog, I hyena, I can't remember the other three. Um, and there's, uh, this is more for South African safari, I think, but the impossible five is like the like five like most difficult to find because they like, you know, because they're they hide and camouflage and whatever. Hmm. Yeah. All right. So you are at 28 points. And we'll call our category Nobel Peace Prize winners. I am pretty bad at that. So let's go with 10 points. All right. Kenya boasts exactly one Nobel laureate. She is a social, environmental, and political activist who founded the Greenbelt Movement, which focuses on planting trees, climate change, and gender advocacy. Who is this 2004 Nobel Peace Prize winner? I have no idea. Uh, Wangari Matai is um, the correct answer here. Um, she is incredible. So she sounds if y'all, she's she's amazing. Um, she started this movement where uh, she paid women to plant trees, uh, like on a I believe on like a per sapling basis, and this Greenbelt movement like made a huge impact on um, reversing environmental degradation. While because she was employing women in this way, um, moving toward um, gender and economic justice. So she's nice. pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she died in 2011. Hmm. She's awesome. Well, cool. All right. Yeah. So sorry for my obscure Kenyan trivia, Kyle. You know, that's okay. Um, trivia is trivia. Yeah. But it was fun talking about Kenya. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was fun talking about Jeopardy. So thank you for potting with me. Of course. Um, and thank you listeners for spending your time with us. It is a joy, as always, to talk about Jeopardy! with you. Um, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It would help us out if you could leave a review or a rating as well. Check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash uh, But, of course, we talk about directing your funds toward uh, something to make the world better. You can help us out without money by telling your friends, though. They can find us on Facebook potent potables uh, and on twitter at potent potables one our email address is potent at gmail.com and our website is potentpod.com. we'll be back with you well will we we're not sure what we're gonna do next week yeah <laughs> we gotta we'll see what shows up <laughs> sometime uh we're waiting to find out what's going on with jeopardy next week and whether it makes sense for us to do a podcast uh or to take a break but regardless, this isn't the last time you'll hear from us. Yeah, and we'll let uh, you know what we're going to do. <laughs> so until next time, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.